to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. It was a dark and stormy night here at three in the afternoon. (laughs) And for the second time in the past two weeks, our friend Lazzie. If I'm going to have a catchphrase for this podcast, I'm going to have intro music as well. Because podcasting is a visual medium, so you're all going to have to imagine that Lazi like walked up to the mic in that moment with the song playing. Yes, and, and my walk-up music is either something by Blackpink or something from Josie and the Pussycats. I don't know what my walk-up music right. would be. What would my walk-up music I don't, be? Probably uh, something by Toblo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This week, we are talking about the 2022 Hugo Awards. Yay! The Hugo Awards, first presented in 1953 and presented annually since 1955, are science fiction and fantasy's most prestigious award. The Hugo Awards are voted on by members of the World Science Fiction Convention, also known as Worldcon, which is responsible for administering them. I... Tessa, am a Worldcon member, but I almost never get a chance to read most of the nominees before voting ends in August. So this year, I challenged myself to read and watch more of the nominees, a challenge that Lazzie and Sam were kind enough to join me in. While I still don't have 100% completion like I did with the Oscars this last year, curse you dissertation, finally over. We did manage to read and watch quite a few of the nominees this year in preparation for the September 4th ceremony. So I just wanted to start off this episode by talking about the Hugo Awards, what has been perhaps our history with the Hugo Awards, why both of you decided to accept this absurd challenge that I made for myself, and what you think perhaps this challenge allowed you to do. So we'll start with you, Lazzie, since you are our guest. Why did you accept this challenge? Well, apart from the fact that I've never met a theme episode that I don't like. <laughs> primarily, it's it's a situation of haven't I just haven't been reading as much as I used to. I used to, when I was a teenager and when I was in my 20s, I'd just voraciously consume and reconsume and reconsume fantasy and science fiction. Then, uh, for some reason, in the last sort of seven to eight years, uh, a lot of my time has been taken up with other small disease-carrying things, and uh, I'm talking about my children specifically. <laughs> Jam hands. <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, so I just haven't been reading as much. So when you were like, yeah, let's do this, and I was like, well, I looked at them and went, actually, I've read a few of those comics in terms of earlier earlier books of them. I've read, I've seen a, quite a few of the media anyway, just from my default media consumption being a little bit more television and film-wise. And why not use this as a perfect excuse to read more, consume more, and um, get exposed to more new sci-fi that I hadn't before, rather than just rereading Lord of the Rings for the 50th time. I think that that's interesting from a monkey list challenge perspective, that you use this almost like a reading challenge. Because I do think that those of us who are not in our teens and 20s have this issue where we sometimes don't read new science fiction like we're just not as aware of it and so the hugos can be this way to 
experience it, to know about these different series that other people are reading. I did a similar thing about five years ago with music as I started listening to some of the NPR music podcasts. And that was the best way to get. I mean, that is an extraordinarily dorky, middle-aged white man thing to do, even for a Brit. But but they did also introduce me to Phoebe Bridges and Julian Baker. Right. So I'm going to give them a little bit of uh, of credit for that. They love nothing if they don't love Boy Genius, Japanese Breakfast at all. Mitski. Mitski. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so that was my way of like forcing myself to listen to new music because otherwise I just wasn't getting exposed to it in the same way. I wasn't there on radio. British podcasts aren't allowed to play anywhere near as long a clip of a song when they talk about music as American ones are for whatever royalty reasons. So yeah, that was my route into that. So I sort of saw echoes of this in terms of, I mean, this is really comics books and uh, TV and movies, but still. I think it's great to present yourself with reading challenges. Sam, why did you take this challenge? Well, better than the Booker Award Challenge, better than the Pulitzer Prize Challenge, and probably better than the National Book Award Challenge. Although, Lazi, if I was going to do any of them, I would do the award formerly known as the Man Booker. Right. Now it's just the Booker. Woolmans can compete too. I know that's not why it's called that, but. Do you know why the World so- Series is called the World Series, Sam? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as soon as Japan fields a team that they reasonably think can beat any American team, they'll, they'll, in- they'll well, they won't invite them, but you get the point. <laughs> I mean, there used to be two teams in Canada. Now, granted, there's only one now, but there used to be two. And I don't know about you, but I don't think, as we talked about on the podcast last time we recorded together, I don't really think that, I don't think there is any other place besides North America in the world. That's just it. That's North what America I've learned from professional baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Japanese baseball is super fun to watch, by the way. I've seen Mr. Ba- I've seen Mr. Baseball. Mr. Baseball. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So I mean, the thing about it is, is honestly, that is my answer. It's better than all of these. You know, I'm constantly. Uh, I've read a fair few of the Booker Prize nominees. To to be fair, and legitimately, that is the list I would adhere to if I was doing a book challenge from the straight world. <laughs> I think of that non-genre literary fiction as something that is very. You know, a lot of people think it's the be-all, end-all, but I don't. I'm saying this as a doctor of philosophy in literature. Like, I, I just hate these awards. You know how I feel about the, the Nobel Prize in literature when we're not giving it to somebody who doesn't write literature. It should be pointed out that Bob Dylan did not win it for music because he can't sing. That's why I advocate for a Nobel Prize in art. Okay. You see, I think he would have been perfect for that award. That's fine. And so as somebody who researches, writes about, and teaches young adult lit, you know, curse your dissertation and curse my book. (laughs) Um, Although fortunately, one of the books we're going to be talking about today is a book that I am discussing in my book. Book, book, book. Book within a book, as it were. Yes. I am somebody who's going to tell you that literature on the margins not just in terms of people of color, although also that, but on the margins in terms of genre fiction. 
which young adult fiction is not genre, a genre. It contains genres. But any of these kinds of things outside of the mainstream are going to be, I think, more rewarding and most of the time more enjoyable. That so why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? That's as good an answer as oh, any. Oh, I had one other thing that's yes. actually on topic. I think the other challenge that I would have considered doing if I had the free time that I wish I had is the Goodreads Awards. Yes. Except now, Goodreads has been captured. That's my new favorite word. Captured. If the Supreme Court can be captured, I can talk about other things being captured, right? By Amazon. And so it is no longer something that I look to as as a thing. By the way, if you're hearing this and you haven't, you've ever used Goodreads and you're not using StoryGraph, you should be. One of the best parts about StoryGraph, other than it is it is created and maintained primarily, I believe, by people of color. It is not affiliated with Amazon. And they have reading challenges, really cool reading challenges that are native to the app. I'm hoping there are more of those, but are imported from various places on the web. So it's a really good place to get some variety in your reading. This has been our unofficial ad for StoryGraph. Please download StoryGraph. (laughs) Can I ask a question that is relevant to both the Hugo Awards and the Goodreads Awards? How do they come up with the nominees? What is the method and how does that vary? So because one of the things we talked about on the Pitchfork episode was that, frankly, I'm not interested in a popularity contest. I'm much more interested in a curated list from a certain group. I know that the long list for the Goodreads Awards, I think everything on the Goodreads Awards is more or less fan generated. Tessa's looking up the Hugo nominations. It's kind of like the Oscars. Each person who is a member of Worldcon gets to nominate up to five entries in each category, and then they amalgamate those for each category every year. First of all, we know that genre fiction has historically been dominated. Well, I mean, in the mainstream, it's been dominated by white men. But as a genre, you're more likely to find women and people of color um, writing genre fiction than you are writing literary fiction. And I think that part of this shows that the membership of Worldcon has gotten incredibly diverse, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. And so you get a lot more nominees that aren't white, that are women. And it, I think that's a good thing. And I, I think compared to other award systems, I mean, I do think some things that come up in these categories, it tells me that they do not have as big of a problem as maybe other places of, of failing to nominate a diverse, a diverse group of people. Having said that, I am a bit concerned that the same group of diverse people keep getting nominated. Right. And um, we should definitely talk as about As we'll that. talk about with the Lodestar category, yeah. especially. So I love a good award show. You should see, if you're just now tuning into Monkey Off My Backlog and you want more award show content... See our five-part Oscar episode with Jack and Megan that came out earlier this year. We will not be covering the Emmys this year because Tessa and I will die. But maybe next year, guys. That that might happen, actually. I love genre fiction, particularly speculative fiction, which does still doesn't get a lot of respect from literary communities, which Sam mentioned. 
So it's kind of nice to see that recognized here. And I am more, as I mentioned, I'm more excited by the diversity and excellence of the nominees than I am by other awards. And this also allowed me to read outside of my scholarship. I've been working with science fiction for my dissertation for so long and working on the same texts and same kinds of texts that it's just been nice since I finished my dissertation to go and see like how the genre has grown in the past couple of years. So that's been really exciting. All right, let's talk about the first category and our correspondent Lazi. So the first category we're going to talk about is best graphic story or comic. Let's see, I read three of these. Okay. And, but you have read all of them, Lazi. Is that correct? Correct. And everybody who dislikes hearing my voice, you will not hear it during this segment. But I'm still here. <laughs> Sam is still present. Ask questions if you uh, choose to, Sam. So. So let's start with Die. So Die, Volume 4, Bleed, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Stephanie Hans, lettering by Clayton Cowles from Image Comics, is the first nominee in this category. I actually read Die for the first time, the first four volumes, in order to prepare for this. But you have been reading this particular series for a while. Is that right, Lazzie? No, actually, um, only the last couple of months. So I decided... about, I don't know, two months ago to go on a Kieran Gillen binge because he was he's starting to write one of my um, favorite series, which is he's actually writing the Immortal X-Men title. He's also currently writing the Avengers X-Men and Eternals Judgment Day crossover, which is a massive Marvel crossover this series this summer. And he wrote a, a frankly subject defining run on Eternals for Marvel. These are all Marvel books. So I decided, oh, well, you know what? I really like his stuff. I'd read one of Wick, uh, Wick Div, which is Wicked and Divine before. What else has he done? So he, that actually led me to read, buying a, the first volume of Die and the first volume of Once and Future, which were also both, which was also nominated here as well. So that's what got me into to that. Uh, and I was very, very happy to see this nominated uh, here. So What's the what's the premise of the series is a group of kids start playing Dungeons a Dungeons and Dragon type game. They're all given magically, or they're all given these dice of unknown uh, import, and each type of die they each get their own type of die with different shapes and different sides on them. That nominates them each into a different sort of category of uh, of uh, dungeoneer or adventurer. Uh, then they disappear. And then they turn up, page turn, and they turn up six years later or 20 years later, I can't even remember. And then the story is actually they then have to go back into the world that they disappeared from into and it explains and slowly lays out what happened to them the first time and what's happening to them now. And it inspects how people build personalities that they um, explore through games, whether it be tabletop RPGs or whether it be Mass Effect or whether it be any other type of games. You know, when you go through your character building sheet, what does that mean? And what would it mean if you actually had to inhabit that character and be that character in that world for not just, you know, 12 hours but or 24 hours, but... 20 years and what does that do to you and particularly interesting is one of the main characters and this is a very common theme 
is male presenting in the real world and plays as a woman in die and then how does that inform them and um yeah so th- that's the that's my very rough and burbly <laughs> summary <laughs> Yeah, I think I have in my notes that I described it kind of like Jumanji meets D and D. Yeah, and by Jumanji I mean yeah. the version with The Rock and Karen Gillan. Yes, agree. Where they go to a different agree. world. Okay, okay, I wasn't gonna say anything, but you <laughs> you literally said Karen Gillan, so I'm gonna point out that Karen Gillan sounds a lot like Karen Gillan, and then you said both of them, and you didn't say anything about that. <laughs> right? You you talked about a work. By somebody named Karen Gillan that is reminiscent of a work that involves Karen Gillan. That's what I was thinking, Lazi, when you mentioned that particular issue, right? You know, of somebody who is male presenting, inhabiting somebody who is, who is, who is not. Which that's a big theme in a lot of stories about RPGs, especially Mm. like this idea that a lot of, and I've heard this from a lot of trans people, the idea that they sort of try out you know, a different gender in an RPG, whether it be, like you said, a video game or a tabletop game. So this is something that is definitely very common. Oh, yeah. I, I never had the option to play a woman in a video game, and I didn't choose it. Never happened. You always chose to play a well, woman. Well, except for Mass saying? Effect. Except for Mass Effect, well, which it, is strange. Well, no, it was getting to the point where, you know, video games are online and you can see, you know, who's who's... You know, a lot of times I didn't want anybody else to know. Right. I see. Okay. That's why. So moving on to our next nominee, Far Sector, written by N.K. Jemison, who has won the Best Novel Award of the Hugos many times. This is her first graphic story that she's ever written. Art by Jamal Campbell. It's a DC comic. Specifically for Green Lantern, which I really didn't know going into this. And I don't think you have to at all. She the the way it's written, it there's nothing to me. She changes the way the ring works from Green and I'm not a big Green Lantern person, but she specifically says she has a different the the Green Lantern in this case is called Sojourner Joe for short. And she gives her a Green Lantern ring that works in a different way, which to me basically says Similar to our discussion about uh, that King Arthur film uh, that we we all watched, this was kind of a separate story that they just decided to make a Green Lantern story. Gotcha. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one, but that's mainly because I'm such a huge N.K. Jemisin stan. She, I think, makes some of the best worlds that I've read in science fiction. She is just excellent at world building. I always want to inhabit the worlds that she creates. But the basic premise of this is that it's a murder mystery, right? A sci-fi murder mystery on the other side of the universe. So for the past six months, newly chosen Green Lantern Sojourner Joe has been protecting the city, enduring a massive metropolis of 20 billion people. The city has maintained peace for over 500 years by stripping its citizens of their ability to feel. As a result, violent crime is virtually unheard of and murder is non-existent. But that's about to change in this new series. You mentioned the world building. I think it feels like a culture novel, and I say that as the highest of praise. Like the world building in this is truly phenomenal. You do, you're you're put in in media, and then it builds out slowly. The way there's layers upon layers of betrayal and intrigue in the murder mystery is fantastically built up. 
just uh, the art you know we have to call out the art on all of these things we didn't really go into a little bit too much on die volume four because it is a volume four book and that's that is one of the things i want to comment on is that some of these are very difficult to compare with each other because far sector is 12 issues of a fully contained story die volume four is five issues of the ending of a story once a future volume three is four issues in the middle of a story so they all slightly different aspects of things but i have to have to agree with you i think the world building absolutely the highest praise i can give it i hated the dialogue <laughs> i think i said this to you on a, on a thing and what i was most interested in was trying to inspect why i didn't like the dialogue so there's a memes are a currency in this world and I just don't know what value that brought to it, other than because a lot of the memes that were referenced were very hokey. A lot of them were 10 years old. A lot of them were referenced in a really clangy way. And it really knocked me out of what I thought was otherwise just a phenomenal world building and great uh, constructed story and beautifully drawn story as well. I did not read our next nominee, Laura Olympus, Volume 1 by Rachel Smythe, which is a Del Rey comic. Can you summarize this and what did you think about it? So this is a a sort of cute modern retelling of a Hades and Persephone story, which I always enjoy Greek mythology. I think it was started as a webcomic and then effectively it got ported over. The art in it is sort of... Uh, a little bit more cartoony, a little bit, a little bit. Don't know. I don't quite have the vocabulary to describe different art styles in that way. But <laughs> it's it's much it's much less detailed. It's much compared to the you know the stunning, all encompassing world of Far Sector. It's much much more. Um, looks like it was drawn for for web comics. It uses single colors in a sort of watercolor style, but in a much more clear way. So each character is color coded in different ways. You have classic sort of Greek mythology uh, occurrences so Hera being jealous Aphrodite being jealous Apollo being a douchebag classic Greek myth my only issue with it is this this is back to me on my classic it's fine like I'm not 100% sure what it's doing here it's it just didn't really stand up to me compared to any of the other books here it's not doing anything I think dramatically interesting with the Greek mythology thing, there's a, a novel about, God knows, maybe a decade ago called Gods Behaving Badly, which is sort of gods in a modern setting in, you know, interacting with each other in penthouses in New York City or London or wherever. And it had a little bit of that. It was cuter than that. It was very consumable, very readable, and I enjoyed it. I wonder if that's because there's so much fan fiction about Hades and Persephone online like if you look online on AO3 or or any site like that you're going to find definitely a subcategory of Hades and Persephone fan fiction so i wonder if this is like an outgrowth of that Hades is definitely a sub in this um but <laughs> he's definitely portrayed in a much more in a much nicer and kinder way um he's not portrayed as a as like a Hercules villain or or anything like that. And Persephone, they're both portrayed quite innocently, but there's also obviously a power dynamic and there's a, not to get into age discourse, but there's an age gap between them as well. Um, this is volume one, so it kind of gets up to them starting to maybe interact and realize that 
so Hades immediately knows he likes her. Persephone doesn't know, it doesn't really understand the world and is more sort of a debutante. It's fine. It's lovely and it's cute, but I'm not sure I would put it up against anything else in this category. Nominee number four, one of my personal favorite series, is Monstrous Volume 6, The Vow, written by Marjorie Liu and art by Sana Takeda from Image Comics. I have been following this series since it started. What I love about the monstrous world is that it's set in like an early 20th century Asia, like inspired world, but it is complete fantasy. And it tells the story of Micah Halfwolf, a teenage girl who shares a mysterious psychic link with a powerful monster. You hear thunder on this recording. We are currently in the middle of a thunderstorm. The background to this story is a war between the Arcanic, who are magical creatures who can sometimes pass for human, and the Kumea, an order of sorceresses who consume Arcanics to fuel their power. A lot of the story is sort of building up to this war between the Arcanics and the Kumea, and there's a lot also with Micah and this like powerful entity that lives inside her, and you know what that means for for her as a person. And this particular volume really focuses on the emergence of full-blown war, which has been sort of led up to by previous comics as well. And of course, our main character, Micah, is at the, at the epicenter, and they're kind of dealing with the consequences of their actions from previous volumes. Lazi, what did you think about Monstrous? Have you read this series before? And what did you specifically think about volume six? So I'd read the first couple of volumes or or I think I'd read like one off issues in Comixology when it was coming out first, because, you know, if you've seen the covers for this, it's one of the most visually grabbing things that I've seen in comics in a long time, it, it, you know, and Marjorie Lou, or th- there's so much in comics where the writer gets so much credit, but Sana Takeda needs, needs to be, have their name absolutely blown up because it is incredible. Again, similar to sort of far sector but 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 like you mentioned some of the world building here is just fantastic the inspirations are not what you see classically in in superhero comics or in 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 comics and most of these are sort of vaguely superhero line comics again it's very difficult to compare a story where you are clearly in the middle of the whole thing (laughs) you've got four four or five comics where you're telling some stories, you are rolling out some plot, but it is dependent on knowing a little bit about what happened before. And, and it ends on a on a really shocking note, actually, which I, di- I didn't see coming. Maybe that was partially because I wasn't in it as much, but um, it was, it's still just, it's just always a joy to, joy to read Monstrous. My only issue with the art is that sometimes, because of the way of the style, I can sometimes not differentiate characters as well as I mm-hmm. would in in other art again that may just be because I've jumped in in the middle and don't have the history of them in quite the same way but always a joy to read monstrous my whole thing about monstrous is that it's like the most beautiful art I've ever seen in a comic juxtaposed with like the most horrific things that you could possibly imagine like this is one of the darkest comics I've ever read so I did not read the last two nominees. Uh, so Lazi, you'll have to take the wheel a little bit more for these two. But the fifth nominee is Once, Once in Future, Volume 3, The Parliament of Magpies. This is the second nominee in this category, written by Kieran Gillen, illustrated by Dan Mora, colored by Tamara Bonvillain. This is from Boom Comics. 
Lazi, what is this about and what was your opinion on it? So Once of Future is is a reimagining of the Arthurian myth in a properly brutal and bloody way. So King Arthur is not a hero in it. It's tied up with a little bit of anti-Saxonism, which is which is consistent with 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 other Arthurian legends. It puts other legends into it as well. So it adds in Beowulf, it adds in oh, now they're falling out of my head, but it brings in every different knight that you might think and every aspect of those knights and allows characters to move between the roles of them. The main characters in it are uh, this sort of guy who's been placed in a in a sort of Lancelot-ish sort of a role, but not not really Lancelot. Um, his grandmother, who's a sort of old gun-toting English woman, uh, his sort of <laughs> girlfriend stroke uh, sort of love interest and also a witch who sort of starts scrying where there's going to be problems in England that they need to go and deal with. Um, at one point, there is a cameo by uh, the police from Hot Fuzz, uh, which is <laughs> very enjoyable to watch. <laughs> this is a very readable, very fun. I like the fact that it takes the Arthurian myth and sort of stops putting it on a pedestal, as it were, and, and makes it darker, makes it twisted, and shows you know Arthur and Merlin and and all these characters as clear villains, and but not just like moustache twirling. Like this is monstrous villains. This is like things that you would see in Witcher as a as something to, to be destroyed. So. Uh, really enjoyable, really well, well, uh, uh, really readable. I don't think it's quite as good as some of the others on here, it, but it, it is it's very enjoyable, and it'll be interesting to see how it uh, continues as it goes along. And then, last but not least, is nominee six in this category: "Strange Adventures," written by Tom King, art by Mitch Gerrards, and Evan Doc Shaner. This is another DC entry. Yeah, so this is the uh, reimagining of a legacy 50s DC character that I had, I'll be honest, frankly, never heard of uh, before. It touches on war and war crimes. It touches on the effect of torture to a hero who's been captured and what that could do to them. It touches on what the presentation of, of victory looks like and how that could be twisted. It being DC, you occasionally get like... Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern just sort of cameoing in it, but actually one of the main characters is a, a, a character called Mr. Terrific, who doesn't have any sort of superpowers, but he has a genius level rapid learning, so he's constantly being followed around by a computer and asked trivia questions that he then repeats and learns and, and repeats the right answers, but he's, effect, it is again, it's a detective in DC, it is a detective comic, and it is exploring this history of a war hero and trying to understand is there actually a crack in that armor is there actually something that was covered up and if there was what does that mean and who's covering it up and how does that play out when it started i was like is that is this really that interesting you know but it it gets it does get much more intense it gets much more interesting the wraps up, wrap ups and the layers around it and the peeling back of the onion on it, even more so than Far Sector, I would say, are very fascinating. It's illustrated in a way that is sort of like a, a little bit of classic sci-fi pulp covery, except that rather than it just being the cover, the whole art style is like that. 
Oh, that's wonderful. So it's really it's a really interesting, beautiful book to for some reason it was cheaper in hardback than in paperback, so I now have a hardback copy of it. <laughs> which I'm pleased of. So um yeah, and that's the other thing just to to wrap up on on the whole whole topic is I got physical copies of all of these because I as much as I enjoy reading on Comicsology, as much as I enjoy reading on Marvel Unlimited, when I'm looking for something beautiful the physical copy with a comic or a graphic novel truly does change the way you consume it. When I read books on Kindle or whatever compared to paperback, other than maps um, and in Terry Pratchett's case, footnotes, I don't miss too much. With a graphic novel or or a comic, as much as I try and go away from physical media, it is, a, it is an area where the physical form is very different and the experience of it is very different when you're reading through a physical form. Absolutely. I cannot imagine trying to read something like Monstrous digitally. Like there are just certain ones that I know that I need the physical copy in order to fully get that impact that the artists are looking for. I'd flip through like old X-Men on Marvel Unlimited all the time. That That's fine if you want to crunch through on, on plot. But when you're looking for for a visual artifact, when you're looking for an object of art and beauty, uh, the physical form is, is is to be recommended. So to wrap up this section, what is kind of your analysis of these? If you had to decide which ones maybe have a chance of winning, which ones maybe are less so? My suspicion is that Lore Olympus is is a little slight. I think once and future is good, but it's middle of the story and it's not quite up there. I don't know fully how the how the voting works, so that may influence things. But then you're talking about four real contenders. Far Sector and Strange Adventures are both complete stories. Die and Monstrous are both well, Die is a, a finishing. That volume ends the story. Um, Monstrous is very much um mid-story. If I were to consider all of Die, I would probably choose that personally. If I am imagining what uh, what the the very uh, beautiful and intelligent members of the voting panel, uh, including yourself, uh, would choose, I suspect you <laughs> might end up closer to Strange Adventures or or Far Sector, particularly obviously as N.K. Jemison has history in the uh, in these awards. Right, and that's something that I've think we're going to probably talk about as we go through each category is that there are certain people every year that seem to get nominated for these things. Rightly so. I mean, N.K. Jemison is just an amazing author, but it does kind of give this impression that perhaps they have a leg up when it comes to these awards because of name recognition, if yeah. nothing else. So that that is definitely a point in the favor of Far Sector. I mean, in this case, they're going up against extremely well-named, well-known people. Tom King, Kieran Gill, and Marjorie Liu are extremely well-known names in the industry. So they're not there's not as much, and this is the first first time up. But I I don't I just don't know. I don't know whether this is um, there will be people voting in this category. I guess who have not read them all, or and and again, it's very tough to compare a full story to if you're just coming in for volume four of bleed of die sorry it's called bleed that it might not make sense but for me the visuals of of die are stunning there's so many sort of yellows and whites and reds and blacks we didn't talk too much about that actually but stephanie hans 
really truly did a, does a wonderful job on that comic and i find i found the story extremely satisfying in the way it, ra- it wrapped everything up in ways that could not have been it could easily have failed to stick the landing because it is it's such a such a in its head sort of ex- exploration of what is it to play games to me that that I, that's the one i would pick but i can i can certainly see positives for a lot of the others as well let's move on to our next segment which is best short story i read four of these i did not get through all of them as i wanted lazi how many of these did you read zero so i shall be playing the role of sam in this category <laughs> and sam you read all of them is that and correct? i shall be playing the role of lazi <laughs> so sam is our short story correspondent and and i do for this category i have short quippy things to say about each of these Perfect. Let's start with nominee number one, Mr. Death by Alex E. Harrow. This was published in Apex Magazine in 2021. So this story is about a man who dies and becomes a reaper. My one-line review of this is the reaper one that was meh. I actually very much agree with you. This was one of the ones that I read. I thought the idea of hiring out the job of the Grim Reaper was interesting. Like there's like the bureaucracy of having an agency of people whose job it is to help people transition from life to the afterlife. And like, it's kind of pokes at office place culture a little bit. I wish they had done more of that in the story, but the ending is so trite and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. But like, I do think it's funny by the way, that as someone who is invested in multiple fandoms in which death is presented in a very bureaucratic fussy way i mean like you'd know if if this was boring i mean you'd be the expert right you you have lots of deaths in your life that i do you have love. lots of deaths in my life that i love and i actually wrote down compared to death of the endless because i felt like <laughs> they were trying to say something very similar to neil gaiman's issue the sound of her wings but ultimately it falls short. And I think that the message that's being given by the ending is it, it's what Lozzie called last week's sweet tea. Like it, it is very much a cop out of looking at death, but then looking away from it in, in a way that I didn't appreciate in this particular short story. All right. Next short story proof by induction by Jose Pablo Iriarte published in uncanny magazine in 2021. So my one-line review of this is, guy does math with dead dad. <laughs> is okay. So the, the story is basically about this sci-fi technology that exists where when it, somebody passes on in a hospital, their memory is captured. And you are able to interact with a simulacrum of the deceased person. So you're able to say goodbye, or they can tell you, hey, the key to the safe, it can be found here. They cannot generate new emotions. And so a math professor who is in danger of not getting tenure decides, what if I use this to continue working on a a math proof with my dead dad? Hi, Jinx and Sue. I actually found this one really interesting because 
it felt like a send up of the academy and the tenure process because a lot of this math that he's working on is like what his tenure is based on. And anyone who's ever gone through that process or has seen someone go through that process know that tenure is like the hazing of the academic world. And it it causes nervous breakdowns. People act out of character when they're going up for tenure. Like it is just like a lot. And so I found that that particular focusing on that aspect that like someone is so desperate for tenure that they would do math with their dead dad. I really appreciated that particular part of the story. It also has a lot to say about personhood. Who is this like copy of this father? Are they like another person than his father, etc.? I I will make one other note. This is a short story, so it won't take you very long. If you read this story, please put the Harry Chapin song Cats in the Cradle on repeat in the background. <laughs> this also reminded me of the Black Mirror episode, Be Right Back, that starred Haley Atwell and Domhnall Gleeson, where Haley Atwell plays a wife who suddenly loses her husband in an accident and then utilizes technology to basically bring him back. It's supposed to be about grief, but it's also kind of about haunting. And so that I found very fascinating. Number three, The Sin of America by Catherine M. Volante. This was published in Uncanny Magazine as well. So my note here is tropey, mctrope, trope, trope. trope. <laughs> uh, so in an episode of Star Trek, Sam watches Star Trek that we recorded yesterday, but I think is going to come out later this week, I talked about how the, the whipping boy trope is extremely common in pop culture. You know, you've got your Ursula Le Guin, you've got Farpoint in Next Generation. This, The Sin of America, is a whipping boy crossed with Sin Eater story. This reminded me a lot of The Lottery, the story by Shirley Jackson. In in that the ending is very similar to The Lottery. This is a straight up Sin Eater. This is somebody who is tasked lottery style with eating the sin of America, as the title entails. It is tropes on tropes on tropes, but it's a good enough story. The one thing that really struck me about it, because you're right, this is a story that we've seen before, and it's fairly well done, but I I like that it takes place in Wyoming, which is kind of a... We usually look at these types of stories about small towns that have sinister undertones. In the U.S., they're usually set in the South. The only example I can think of that's more Midwest Gothic is the television show Supernatural. So the fact that this is set in Wyoming, I thought was, it it was interesting. I would also say, by the way, this was also very reminiscent of an episode of future Hugo nominee for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form. Sandman, in which it it takes place in a diner, right? Yes, and so it and and nothing good is going to happen in that diner, and you know that you may not know exactly what's going to happen if you haven't read the comic, but it felt the same same vibe. Same I think vibe. I I think I saw that episode and read the story within a day of each other, and it did immediately strike me. But yeah, Sandman's totally going to be nominated next year. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I that is not something that I would argue with at all. And then nominee number four, which was the last one that I read, is Tangles by Shauna McGuire. This was published on magicthegathering.com in 2021. 
Magic the Gathering story about dryads. So if dryads are your jam, you'll probably like this story. If you like Magic the Gathering, you'll probably like this story. If you like Sean and McGuire, as I do, you'll tolerate this story. <laughs> I don't know that there are many stories about dryads, though. So I, I really don't think there are. There is a uh, one of the... Um, Gosh, it's the elf song of Shannara. Is, the elf stones. She's not really stones. a dryad, but she does turn into a tree. Yes, the elf stones. You could you conflated Did I the say elf song. You conflated the elf stones I, I, I conflated and the wish song. Elf, wish song. Yeah. Well, close enough. <laughs> I'm going to correct you on on extremely popular 80s <laughs> fantasy. <laughs> that is one of my big fantastic fiction goals is to finally get through that the entirety of that series you know within a few years of it actually being finished there still seems to be more coming out though like i know well i've started in order i don't think you and i have talked about this i have started rereading them in chronological okay in universe order most of them i've read pretty much everything up through the Voyage of uh, Gerald Shannara. 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 So I've read the Word in the Void trilogy twice now. So I'm going to start with, I think it's the Genesis. What I thought was interesting about this particular short story is that it doesn't blend tropes or genres the way that I'm used to Sean and Maguire blending it. It reads as a pretty traditional fantasy story, which I haven't really seen her write. I thought it was pretty well done. I like dryads. And so there's a lot, obviously, about climate. There's a lot about, like, relationships with the earth. I don't know much about Magic the Gathering, but I didn't feel like I needed that information in order to understand this story, which I think is a mark of good storytelling. I'm sure that if you love Magic the Gathering, you would have gotten way more out of this than I did. Number five, Unknown Number by Blue Newstifter. This was published on Twitter. You didn't read this one? I thought you had. I did not. All right. So my one-line review for this one is, this is my raspberry jam. (laughs) Because, you know, when you say something is your jam, it's your thing. Well, I'm saying it's my favorite type of thing. Because this story involves alternate universes, parallel universes, with some undertones with some notes, some tasting notes of time travel. But here's the hook. So you know I'm already on board with this story, right? So this is an Apple direct message, like the blue, the blue chat, yeah, not yeah. the green chat. This is a which I think matters sort of, but I'm not going to talk about it. But this is a chat between our nominally protagonist and an unknown number. Unless you think the unknown number is the protagonist. Either way. I just remembered I've read this, yeah. (laughs) Basically, it is a person contacting their self in an alternate universe. The hook comes very quickly. You quickly find out that the other self, the unknown number, is a man contacting a woman. So basically, somebody who was too afraid to crack that egg and come on out as a trans woman has become a genius in physics so that they can contact 
somebody, their, their self in an alternate universe who did transition to find out if it was worth it. And wow. Wow. This is sci-fi, man. This yeah. is science fiction. It's really good. There's no reason. Like, if this, if this story doesn't win, I mean, I, I, I think we should, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what penalty is severe enough. <laughs> for the, no, really. I mean, like, if you think about what science fiction is, what speculative fiction is at its core, which is the imagining of possible worlds and simultaneously the reimagining of our current world so that you can comment on it. This story does that in, in a pure, extremely pure form. Well, now I really want to read this story. And you can read it in less than 10 minutes. I, yeah, so I've read it I, without realizing that I was reading one of the, one of the nominees. <laughs> because someone Congratulations, sent, you did it. Someone sent me a link to it. I agree with everything Sam says. It's got, it's got heart in it. It's, it's, not, it's science fiction, so it's speculative. It, it's about you know, a multiverse, but it's not. It's about an inspection of self. Right, so that I mean, at its core, that that's what it covers. But it uses the form in such a genius way to do so as a conversation between two potential aspects of the same person. It's it's not simple. It's not just a "Are you happy?" Yes or no, because right. because neither of them are perfectly happy and neither of them perfectly unhappy. What does it mean, and what aspect of coming out does you know changes things for you, etc. It's hard to spoil this because it's so short. One of the concerns of the person sending the texts is that they are now middle aged, and it's like it's it's one thing to say, "Was it the right decision?" So you can look back on your life and go, "Oh, well, what if I had done this? It would have been different. It probably would have been better," but. This person is also asking for, and and this is, I think, something that's true about the entire LGBTQ plus community. Your mileage may vary. And so you ask somebody about coming out, whether you're trans or gay or anything else. And the answer is, is I can't tell you because I don't know your life. I don't know all the variables. This person is desperately seeking the answer to somebody tell me it's not too late, which is something I relate to. And, you know, people have told me that, no, it's not, it's never too late. Uh, a very prominent trans person on Twitter, I asked her that question and that's what she said. Uh, you know, she was, she was very positive about it and, and said, you just, but you'll never know. You'll never know if this will happen or if this won't happen. But you would have never known that if you'd done it 20 years ago. The fact that you're over 40 doesn't necessarily mean anything. So uh, it was an experience to read this. And, and, and I think that's also good, very outward facing. If you're, if you're not a trans person, this is, this is good. This is good. This is, this is something people actually go through. I agree with that, and and I'll I might refer back to it. There's a there's a novella that is uh, has an intersex protagonist, and the the beginning of it is effectively them 
learning at age 10 that they're intersex. And it, it actually plays no role after that. It's quite quite well done. This is a Sean Maguire story. So it's, um, it's, but it's a very interesting comparison in terms of the experience of learning and what you do with that versus this wonderful um, exploration of the human condition in terms of regret and in terms of cowardice and in terms of uh, braveness that comes from a conversation in blue and white check marks against each other in a Twitter feed. Like I agree. I completely agree with Sam. If this doesn't win, it's so short sighted. I do want to say really quickly too, before we leave on this one, we've talked about this, you and I, Tessa, a few times. I don't think it's involving anything on the Hugo nominating list, but I think it's a good, I call it the Carl Sagan rule. It really annoys me when people talk about exploration in space as the search for answers. The the search for the the answer to ourselves is out there, which is of course the moral of contact. No, it's not. It's in here. Maybe we should stop being such assholes to each other in an effort to understand what makes us go than to send penis rockets in space. I mean, it's playing out in reality. This thing that, you know, Carl Sagan, with the help of Jodie Foster, you know, turned us on to over 20 years ago. But the thing about reading and watching a lot of these things that are nominated is you see this play out over and over again. The best fantastic fiction looks within. You create imagined worlds to look within. The answer ain't out there, people. <laughs> the truth might be, but... <laughs> I, I'm going to have a very short aside about Contact. Uh, I, re- uh, I read Contact uh, as a teenage Catholic, and Contact as a book piles in on Catholicism. Not unfairly. Yeah, it does. But I, fa- I found it so obnoxious in the way that it did that. And then I hate the ending because of the way way she comes back like it comes back i'm not i'm not doing spoilers because this book came out so long ago I'm like she comes back no one believes her nothing's changed and it, it, i found it so frustrating that book and i just it's just never been something i've revisited because i found the way it engaged with that so it's not that you can't appropriately and shouldn't appropriately criticize the catholic church because you absolutely should but it was so dismissive of faith and this is go this is way off things like i have no time for religion i have a huge amount of time for faith because it's such an individual thing and faith is a reflection kind of to me of what you said sam in terms of how you engage with yourself to find answers rather than looking beyond religion is something some other structure someone has has constructed that you can use perhaps to find your faith, which is your reckoning with yourself. But much like you can use your vocation or your adventure or your sense of exploration to do that too, but fundamentally it ultimately comes down to a conversation with yourself about reconciling what it is you are and who you are, which actually is themes of die as well. Anyway, sorry, as we said, an hour in, two categories. 
I love all this. You you have all sold me on this story, which I was going to read anyway. So I'm I'm excited for it. Our final nominee in the short story, best short story, is Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather by Sarah Pinkster, published in Uncanny Magazine. So this is an experiment in genre. If you've ever gone on like Genius and looked at annotated song lyrics, that's what this story is. This story is a heavily annotated English folk song. And within that annotation, you get a uh, a horror story. <laughs> you get all the all the personalities. English folk songs and horror? Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't you even get... imagine those two things together. But this is a work in genre. This is about the the jerk who always flags for review. You know, in wikis and things like that, you know, people's comments. There's the just vibes only person who doesn't really add anything analytical. That's me talking. There's the there's the academic. You know, it, it's it's I, really I interesting. Like how you like looked at me when you said there's the academic. <laughs> I, the point is, like she looked in the mirror and said just vibes, and then she looked at Tessa and said academic. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> The thing that happened was I was trying not to look at you when I said just five. And I snapped back as soon as I was done. So I, I think this is an interesting story from the point of view of somebody who grew up with online chat, online message boards, listservs, uh, Usenet, all of those things, like seeing the evolution of these things and seeing how they've come to play in something as seemingly unimportant as annotation of lyrics on a website but then that's mixed up with it's i i want to say it's a wicker man story it's basically the the small english town does sacrifice right human sacrifice i don't know that we'll call that the wicker man trope but i believe that's what the wicker man is the movie. Yes. I don't know. I'm looking at you, Lazi, because it's... I don't like horror movies, but that is what we do in every small town in England, so... Yeah, right. of course. Of course. Mostly tourists, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, sure. isn't that the Wicker Man? Isn't it a tourist? Yeah, much like Midsummer, right? Oh, like, yeah. it's the same vibe, yeah. right? And it got remade, I believe, with uh, Nicolas, Nicolas Cage. Cage. yeah. The Bees. It was at this point that we decided to break the episode into three parts because we were having so much fun and because we wanted to have time to really dig into each category. So tune in tomorrow for the second part of our special Hugo's nomination episodes where we're going to discuss the categories of Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form, Lodestar Award for Best Young Adult Book, and Best Novelette. You can find Lozzie on Twitter at Mean Englishman. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, and what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.